really perceptive questions, especially when they come on kind of a bed of trust or relationship, can reveal so much that is so needed. It can help people feel like someone cares about them, is interested in them. So curiosity about other perspectives is a very warming, welcoming kind of thing. Now, my work is about the political divide, which we'll get into. And curiosity applied to the political divide is, I think, the most critical skill we need today. This is Choose to be Curious, a show all about curiosity. We talk about research and theory, but mostly it's conversations about how curiosity shows up in work and life. I'm your host, Lynn Borton. Welcome. Come, choose to be curious with us. I launched Choose to be Curious in May of 2016. As I was developing the concept in the months before kicking off the show, I kept coming back to this idea that we make all sorts of choices every day And given the opportunity, I hoped people would choose to be curious. And so I set about encouraging my listeners to do just that. Then along came the 2016 election. In the community that voted three to one Democratic, I was in a bubble. I knew it. And I was having a very hard time feeling curious. I joined a local group that hoped to bridge divides and open conversations, but It didn't go very far. I confess I did want to understand the other guys, but I definitely did not. And I didn't really want to do the work and certainly didn't know how to reach across what felt like an unfathomable chasm. So much for choosing to be curious. But elsewhere around the country, I heard hopeful news of efforts more successful than my own, efforts that had put muscle behind the call to curiosity, efforts that had borne fruit or at least some amount of insight, efforts that reminded us there is so much more that unites us than divides us, always. One of those efforts came out of Seattle, Washington. It ventured over the Snoqualmie Pass, across the Columbia River, and onto Sherman County, Oregon. A blue bubble like my own seeking conversation with a red enclave. Monica Guzman, then brand new co-founder of the Seattle newsletter Evergrey, was a driving force behind the Seattle effort. Monica has proven herself a reliable bridge builder and curiosity champion ever since. She's founder of Reclaim Curiosity and now senior fellow for public practice at Braver Angels. I'm in awe of just how real she's made choosing to be curious these seven years, and I'm thrilled that she's written a book to help the rest of us do the same. I never thought of it that way, how to have fearlessly curious conversations in dangerously divided times is as encouraging a book as I can imagine, chock full of tips and tricks, and mostly a lovely reminder that, as she puts it, Understanding the people who confound us is always, always worth it. And not everyone has to have these conversations, but enough of us must. So welcome, Monica. Thank you for having me, Lynn. This is great. I sorry. <laughs> as soon as you asked me the question, I was like, oh yeah, I'm supposed to say something. It was a really nice intro. Okay, I'm I'm with it. I'm here. Hi. <laughs> I'm excited to have you here. And you're, you know, you're incredibly generous in talking about your work and the book. And I I actually find myself thinking about a question you posed to kick off the conversations with Sherman County. It was so simple and so 
but so profound. I've, I've actually started to start my day this way. Mm. And I wanted to start our conversation here as well is what could happen here today that would leave you feeling that this was a good, good investment of your time? Mm, and you mean in on the, in this conversation? In this conversation. Oh, you have so fun. many of these. <laughs> well, I, I have to be honest. I mean, one of the reasons that I do so many of these is because conversations that get into these profound topics and that bring up new questions about it and people's own experiences intersecting with these ideas are just everything I live for right now. They are really, really fun for me. So what would leave me feeling like this was a good investment of my time is feeling like this conversation is organic and genuine, which I think it already is. So, <laughs> and, and that um, what often happens with me with a great conversation is I kind of disappear into it. So suddenly uh. it's time and I go, Oh yeah, what whoa. You know, like what was that? And my brain has just done a workout and my heart has done a workout and it feels really good and I go into the rest of my day inspired. Uh see, I think this is why your book is as effective as it is, because I feel like that that is so clearly the spirit behind the book, which is which is wonderful. So lots of folks haven't read this book yet. So let's give them I don't know, let's give them a little bit of background. Like, how do you define curiosity for starters? I ask this question of everybody I talk to. And how do you then use it in your work? I mean, why is it important? Curiosity is wanting to close the gap between something you know and something you don't know. It's the pursuit of knowledge. People call it the knowledge emotion because it comes with kind of a rush. Sometimes it comes with a lot of anxiety. If whatever it is that you want to know is worrying you or there's a lot of uncertainty, curiosity can be uncomfortable of a rush. But a lot of times it's adventurous. And one question leads to more questions and more questions and more questions. And I feel like the world's been changed that way. It's almost like a, you know, just hitting the turbo button on your thinking where you go, I want to know, I want to know. And now we've got so many information sources at our disposal that that's not all that hard. You pull out your phone, you look something up for most questions. Other questions are a lot harder and maybe the information is not out there. Yeah. Why it's yeah. important for my work is there's very few things that are more powerful in human interaction than a really perceptive question from one person to another. I've been a journalist my whole career and it's neat how in live conversations with public officials or really anyone, you know, people want to avoid that scenario where they might be asked a question live. That's the power of a question. What if it's not the question they want to answer? How will they dodge it effectively if it's just too complicated or they won't understand or if they're a bad actor and it's going to expose them, whatever the case may be. But really perceptive questions, especially when they come on kind of a bed of trust or relationship, can reveal so much that is so needed. It can help people feel like someone cares about them, is interested in them. So curiosity about other perspectives is a very warming, welcoming kind of thing. Now, my work is about the political divide, which we'll get into. And curiosity applied to the political divide is, I think, the most critical skill we need today. Because curiosity is endangered. The more certain we are, the more certain we feel, and the more fear we feel, the less we can tap our curiosity. Curiosity can't survive when we think we know we won't think to ask. 
And you can't wonder about something you think is out to get you. You're going to run away. So this is a high threat level sort of time, but it's also a high misperception kind of time. We have a lot of ways that we exaggerate when we look at the other side on something. And then we feel certain because we've read something on the internet or we get all these signals. So what else is out there? Actually, quite a lot is out there. But we're doing so little communicating in between these communities of thought that it's very easy for a very intelligent, very informed, very educated person to have entirely the wrong idea about Mm -hmm. people who disagree with them. One of the things that you say in your book that I thought was really just lovely was an encouragement to be one more level curious about people who disagree with you. Mm -hmm. And I thought, what an easy way to put it particularly for people who like to think of themselves as open-minded, like to think of themselves as well-informed, that there's a particular trap there. I mean, I, I feel it. I know it myself, right? And so a gentle reminder, like, eh, just take it a notch up, mm-hmm. just a notch up, is a really, it's a welcome mat to an uncomfortable doorway, maybe. Yeah. And for a lot of people, they hear messages like this and they think, oh my gosh, you want me to go talk to a Nazi tomorrow, right? You want me to go to the hardest possible, most hateful person? It's like, no, this is about incremental change that has profound impact. When you make small changes and just the practice of curiosity, where you're in a conversation of disagreement and you wanna jump in with your opinion, well, what if you ask one more question first? a question that's truly geared toward learning something about the other person's views, not putting them on the spot in a terrible way, not accusing or attacking them. What'll happen then? We know that people can hear only when they feel heard across a big divide. So the more time you spend listening, the more likely they're gonna listen to you. There's practices like this that you can apply in very small ways in just one conversation and you've already made a difference. Yeah. So I do a lot of sort of harvesting of what I call curiosity practices for people, like ways that people can, large, small, kind of bring curiosity into their lives. And your your book is just full of them. I'm turning people into storytellers, asking yourself, what am I missing? Or one of my favorites, Walk a Mile in My News. Mm-hmm. Do you have some favorites from the book or just from your own experience that that you want to kind of Surface? I know. That's like a tough question. Yeah. Like, which are your favorite children? But Exactly. No, it's usually, I mean, the other fun thing about conversations like this is like, we'll see what's in my head that moment when I get right. asked. I'll always so, be different. So we won't say that it's your favorite curiosity <laughs> practice. We'll just say that these are the ones that come to you right now. Yeah. Yeah. So right now I'm thinking about one that I don't often talk about, oh, good. which is when someone asks you something and you don't know the answer, typically you want to say something or you want to save face. And so you'll say something. But I think that saying, I don't know when Mm. there's high expectation that you should satisfy with an answer, but when you're honestly, honestly answering, I don't know, that's a real gift to the conversation because what you're doing is you're allowing that door that's been opened by that question to remain open. Um, Instead of just going this, this, right? So I think I don't know is the most important, honest answer to any question uh, because it allows curiosity to live on, even if it's uncomfortable for for the parties involved. It's like we can't make those kinds of demands of each other. So that's one that's coming to mind. 
I like that. I like that. I also like that in the context of the way you frame so much around understanding values and how our values bias will block curiosity. Mm-hmm. And a lot of us value knowledge or, you know, or knowing ourselves well enough to actually have an answer on something like that or yeah. or believing that our beliefs are grounded in information and fact and maybe they're grounded in a value instead. And you talk a lot about values in the book and I wonder could you talk some about that because I I don't people don't always talk about this in the context of conversation. Oh yeah, for sure. Values are very closely tied to concerns. So that that's the way that it's brought tactically into a conversation. So because I've done a lot of interviews in my career, I've I've discovered naturally that asking people what their concerns are about something is one of the most fruitful ways to get to understand their view. Uh, we, we like to ask, you know, what do you think of abortion or why do you think this and that kind of thing? But if you ask, what are your concerns? What, what concerns you about what's going on with abortion right now? Right. And then keep that line of questioning going when they've given you a concern or two, then go, what else? What else? People tend to begin by answering what they think is safest. So it's what other people would say, right? So they'll say first the concerns that seem, well, that others have used them, so I'll use them. But if you keep going, you might find something fresher and more personal and a lot more interesting. But the, the thing about concerns is when you when you ask people what they what worries them, you learn what they care about. Right. And what they care about at the base level is values. You're listening to Choose to be Curious, a show all about curiosity. I'm your host, Lynn Borton, and I'm joined today by Monica Guzman, journalist, entrepreneur, and champion of fearlessly curious conversations in dangerously divided times. But here's the thing. A lot of people think, well, if you disagree with someone, it's because you have different values, but that's not true. What, what, it, what happens is that we all have the same values, but we stack them in a different order for different issues. So nobody hates freedom. Nobody hates safety or security. That's ridiculous. <laughs> no, nobody right. hates the idea of fair treatment of themselves and others. No, nobody comes out, comes out against that, right? And it's actually, it's a great tip, you know, when you're out there in the world and you recognize somebody making that claim, just immediately don't believe it and know yeah. that they're trying to manipulate you. Just don't believe that. It's not true. They might, they might care about something else more. Uh, our wicked issues, the issues that are the toughest to resolve and that we pretty much don't resolve. We just keep trying to rebalance, you know, things depending on what we learn. Those issues always put good values into tension with each other. Everyone, immigration, abortion, guns, all these issues put good values into tension with each other. So it's important to remember that the, the person on the other side of you, you're going to be tempted to think, because they oppose what I support, they hate what I love, including the values that I love. Not true, not true. Um, but if you get curious about what is it that they care about more than I do, you know? So in abortion, like me and my mom have had incredible conversations about abortion. And, you know, the, the, the value of freedom, the freedom to thrive for the woman, the mother, uh, for me is quite important. Um, and for her, <laughs> the value of life, of protecting life, 
in the womb is really important. But we acknowledge, like, I'm not sitting over here going, life doesn't matter. No, in fact, in fact, we've really had, like, I've cried with her because life matters deeply to me. And this is hard. And the same with her. She's like, I don't want, I don't want women to suddenly feel trapped you know, by these things. And so that's led to really creative, fruitful conversations. But imagine if we'd come into those going, you're just the monster that doesn't believe this beautiful, basic thing. So yeah, it's really important that we come in into conversations about our concerns with that mindset that it's not that they have different values. It's that they, sh they stack them in a different order for different issues. And we all do that. And they're not consistent across issues. <laughs> they are not. No, no. And I was interested in reading your conversation and comparing your values with your dad's because, of course, you're very, you're very upfront about your own story of having these deep kind of political differences with people you love profoundly and obviously respect and appreciate but we'll fight with, you know, tooth and nail. And I have to say, for me, that was actually one of the really encouraging things about the book is that it is possible to stay in conversation with people, even with the deepest, deepest divisions, particularly when you pay attention to the fact that everybody's driven by values. And yeah. I thought your your description of that with your dad was was particularly beautiful, actually, kind of appreciating, huh, huh, actually, he's showing up with some values that, like, I think I value. And yet, in yeah. these scales, we're just so different. Yeah, exactly. I think I mentioned it in the book, but one of the things that's really important, in particular about my dad and, you know, the values that stack up to his conservative views on, on a lot of things that I'm more liberal on, there's there's one in particular that I just constantly learn from from him. And it's the difference between in in literature that tries to articulate values very precisely. There are two, you know, what are thought thought of as universal values, benevolence and universalism. These particular two, there are there are many others, are so interesting because universalism is, you know, you want good for everybody. Everybody everywhere all the way. And benevolence is you want good for your people, your family, your children, your community, right? If you belong together, then there's there's a there's a deep level of caring that attaches to that. So what I've realized about my dad, when I was growing up, I remember I used to volunteer for some organizations that worked on things that were kind of far out, right? And he he had a little <laughs> bit of like, eh, I don't really get it. <laughs> uh -huh, uh -huh. Um, and so I thought back then to myself, like, my dad's not a caring person. And I was so wrong because mm. when it comes to our family or, you know, extended or close, the, the people who are closest to him, his friends, he would take a bullet, yeah. like no question. He wouldn't even pause. So I think of it that way, you know, that, that here I was thinking he doesn't have this value of caring. Oh, he absolutely does. He has a higher benevolence than I do, you know? Um, whereas for me, in some ways, it's almost the opposite. Like I suspect... I, I get like scared about loyalty. Loyalty is a low value for me. And I'm always afraid that if I do too much for the people closest to me, I'm like playing favorites. That's how strong my universalism is. So it's weird, isn't it? And it's like, it you can go back and forth about which is better. But the thing about these universal values is they're all really good. Right. It depends on when you deploy them. Well, and as you say, you deploy them differently in different circumstances or, or day to day. Yeah. You know, we're not, we're not monoliths. We're certainly not cast in stone. 
so we show up as these kind of yeah shifting complicated yes. creatures in conversation yes. trying to find our way in yes. the company of other complicated creatures and it makes it makes us humble i think because it shows things that seem universally bad like mm -hmm. and this is i'm gonna think out loud a little here i know this is gonna sound crazy <laughs> but like hypocrisy hypocrisy sounds so awful and it is in a lot of ways right you're just kind of like speaking out of two sides of your mouth depending on what side is is got the upper hand or that you're attached to but the, the, this thing about values helps us see what's really going on in some cases. You know, somebody who is, who is, you know, uh, pro, uh, well, who is pro-choice on the abortion issue would say, I need to have control over what I do with my body. You know, so, so self-determination is a very strong value for that. But then you take that same person who might be more liberal and you put them in to the COVID vaccine mandate debate. And suddenly, no, we need to force people to, to vaccinate themselves you know, and, and take away their jobs if they don't and put all kinds of horrible things uh, as deterrence to their not complying. So that's a really wonderful example of the thing that you will argue tooth and nail for one issue, you will not argue for another. Yeah. So is that hypocrisy or is that just our variableness as human beings? It's the variableness of human beings, but it will be weaponized as hypocrisy. And I think uh, people just need yeah. to see past it. Yeah. You know, just, yeah. okay, sure. What you might call it hypocrisy because it makes you angry, but, <laughs> but I have a right as you do to look at issues differently. But, but what we do when we argue, one of the things we do is we hold people to things in the hopes that we can sabotage, you know, that we can point out, aha, well, if you believe it over here, you don't believe it over here. Like, explain that. You know, that means you're that means you're you're crazy. You're stupid. It's like, no, it doesn't actually. It doesn't necessarily because these are different circumstances. And staying curious in those places is actually one of the really interesting ones, right? For ourselves too. I mean, in conversation with others, but even like, well, okay, why do I feel so strongly about it this way? And and not here, like not here. Yeah, and in you fact, know. I mean, what's great about being confronted with those inconsistencies is it should make us curious about our own beliefs. Right, like that is interesting. I suppose if someone, let's say that I'm that person, you know, that I just outlined, and if I'm that person and someone points that out to me, you know, I go, huh? Well, maybe that maybe that line of argument is not actually why I believe other people should believe this because if I don't hold it consistently across all things, well. You know, maybe it's not as as strong of a thing as I think it is, and so that that should make us think. Yeah, yeah. Or as you say, begin with the radical idea that no one is beyond understanding, and see what that reveals, ourselves included. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> because in an argument, we do well. Yeah, first of all, we we just we don't get curious about ourselves for the most part. We're right. we're thinking about you know defense and offense with the other person too many times because we want to win. But yeah, it's. And, and then we do these things because we want to win that are trying to sabotage, that are trying to find weak spots instead of, wait a minute, that other person is a valid person. You're not going to invalidate them, you know, and they hold the beliefs they hold and you're not going to change their mind. And I, I'm pretty um, resolute on this, that the language that we use where I can change your mind and you can change mine is just completely off. Uh, you change your mind and I change mine. No one else can change my mind. No one. And if I have a conversation with someone and I end up changing my mind on something in a big way, 
That's not because the other person had some huge power over me. It's because my mind was already fertile ground for that idea. And it just needed a little, one more little drop. That's why. So we, we have pretty deep constitutions, you know, and our views come from all of our experiences and they have deep roots. And that, that should make us less scared of engaging even with people who hold ideas we find really unsavory. I'm going to leave it right there because I think that's so beautiful and we're going to run out of time and I want to do my big jar of wannabe analogies. Yeah. Are you game for this? Totally. Okay. Okay. So this is literally a big jar. I have slips of paper in here. I'm going to take one for you, one for me, one for the audience. Okay. And we're going to make an analogy to curiosity with whatever is on this. Mm. Nice. <laughs> um, okay. Yours is... A firecracker. How is curiosity like a firecracker? Oh, that's good. Um, mine is sleeping, and I have one for the audience. So do you want to go first, or do you want me to give it a shot? Uh, I can go first, I guess. Okay. Okay, but first I have a silly question. Yeah. I don't like fireworks. I was really scared of them growing up. Is a firecracker the thing that just makes a sound, or is it the thing that makes light? Um, a, a firecracker is actually a small thing. It's like a tiny stick of dynamite, actually. Okay. It's probably the thing that scared you. Yeah. Like people would throw them in the streets. Yeah. Um, so that's a firecracker. Okay. I don't know okay. if firecrackers are actually used in fireworks. Maybe they are. I don't know. Maybe they are. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Because I was always the, the cousin, you know, who would just <laughs> run off. Hiding like, inside. <laughs> ah! Okay. Um, curiosity is like a firecracker because... It can completely surprise you uh, mm. with uh, an impact that could be quite quite loud in your mind. Um, you could say, whoa, I never thought of it that way. If you ask something and get a certain answer, if you learn something new, it yeah, it can be it can be pretty loud and it can be pretty fun. <laughs> and um, for those who are not terrified of Fourth of July fireworks like I was, you can uh, <laughs> have a lot of firecrackers <laughs> all over and, and, and really enjoy it. I love it. I love it. Okay. So mine is sleeping. Um, uh, I'm going to say that sleeping, sleeping is like a natural state for us, right? And um, and most of us don't do enough of it. And I think that's like curiosity. It's a natural state for us. And yet most of us don't do enough of it. I'll say that. Ooh, and then audience. That's good. Yours is mouse. <laughs> is curiosity <laughs> like a mouse? Let me know. Social media, hashtag, analogy. Well, Monica, thank you so much for this. This has really been a totally. lot of fun. And just thank you for the work that you're doing out there in the world. Yeah, and thank you for yours. And I'm just imagining curiosity scurrying. Hint, hint, audience. <laughs> it scurries. It scurries. Awesome. Thank you. This was great. You've been listening to Choose to be Curious. I'm Lynn Borton. Thanks for joining us today. You can find me here on this fine community radio station and on my website at choosetobecurious.com. I hope you follow me here, there, and on social media at Choose to be Curious. And I hope you'll share your mouse analogy, hashtag analogy. Many thanks to my guest, Monica Guzman. Links to her work, and I never thought of it that way, on my website. Thanks, too, to Sean Ballack for our theme music, and this is Shift of Currents by Aeronaut via Blue Dot Sessions. Speaking of, how might you shift some conversational currents in the days and weeks ahead? I know Monica's made me feel more confident and hopeful about trying and even more certain we can't afford not to. I hope you join me in that and here again next time 
Until then, choose to be curious.